Caesar's in the last. Let's uh, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, that we can call you Father. That as as we consider everyone in this room, you've made us to be your uh, your adopted children and brothers and sisters with one another. So we look now to your word for instruction on the institution of marriage. And you have given us uh, that institution as an image of Christ and his bride. So I pray that you would uh, work on those who are married in this room to strengthen our marriages. For those who are not, that they will uh, find instruction for what will one day uh, be for them. And above all, may we all grow more to cherish our true husband, Jesus, and to love more of his bride, the church. Work these things in us, we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and read God's word together. First Peter 1, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing your honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So you all know that I like to to hunt and to fish, um, and you'll hear people saying, "Well, it's called hunting, not killing. It's called fishing, not catching." But if I'm honest, if I have a rifle in my hand. I'm after the killing part. That I'm off after the payoff. That's what I'm interested in. I can hike around the woods all year long, but if it's, if I have a tag in my pocket and a rifle in my hands, I'm waiting for that adrenaline rush of some big animal in my scope. Uh, my brothers told me, I like to hunt with you, but you're the most intense person that I hunt with. Uh-oh. Uh, something about the prospect of there there could be an elk just like right over the next ridge, right around the next bend that keeps me going. Uh, so sometimes that attitude gets me into trouble. Um, one season I hunted really hard all season. It was near the end of the season and uh, I had had some close encounters with elk that were devastating, <laughs> really close. I think I missed a shot. Um, and I had a cow tag, I was hunting elk, and one evening we, we were sitting, my dad and I were sitting, there's kind of this big meadow, and then you go up through the meadow and there's a saddle, and there's another meadow on the other side, so you drive up and park in the first meadow, 
and we were sitting there hoping some elk would come out for their evening feeding, and I start to hear elk somewhere over there, and as sun's going down, I, I decide, well, I'm going to go try to find them, so I hike back over into that other meadow, and as I went over, I started to realize it was almost dark, and so then I, then I see down in the distance a big herd of elk, like a hundred, maybe 7,500 elk, and I can hear them, they're bugling and, and antler smashing, you know, uh, that, that really got my blood pumping. Um, so I jogged down to this little knoll, this little hill where I got prone, and it was just, just getting dark. And I, I lined up and through my scope, I could see a, a nice big cow standing there uh, in my scope. So I squeezed the trigger. And as I hiked down, I couldn't find where she went. I thought she went into this draw, so I started to wander down there and got my flashlight. And as I walk up on this elk, I noticed the cow that I shot has antlers, <laughs> to my horror. So as the DOW officers were dealing with me, he said, you know, you could have waited. You could have waited till tomorrow. They may have been there tomorrow. Of course, they wouldn't have been there tomorrow, but he's right. I should have waited. I shouldn't have taken that shot. Uh, there was something about that moment, though, that I just had to pull the trigger, unfortunately. So the reason I tell this story is it demonstrates to me what we tend to do when we lose sight of eternal realities, when we lose sight of hope. If we don't have confidence in what the future holds, we, we can become short-sighted and we can become impatient, kind of jumping at, at an opportunity for immediate gratification. So we lose sight of that, that future inheritance we've been talking about. We fail to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, when that happens, uh, wives will struggle with their calling to submit to husbands, and husbands will, will fail to respect our wives. In this section, Peter has been demonstrating to us the implications of our new life and future hope in Christ, especially as they relate to our temporary earthly relationships, those of us to the government, those of uh, slaves to masters, or I applied it to... Uh, uh, employees and employers, and now he looks to the temporary earthly relationship of marriage. So here's my uh, proposition for this morning. It is that Christian hope, true hope, fuels a Christ-like marriage relationship. Christian hope fuels Christ-likeness in the marriage relationship. So the first area of marriage that Peter looks at here, he addresses the submission of her wife of wives to their husbands. And what we see is that Peter seeks to motivate wives to, in this task uh, by weighting it with an eternal gravity. So he says in verses... 1 and 2, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So here it's important to note that, that Peter's not trying to develop a complementarian treatise here. He's, he's not 
expounding on that. In fact, he kind of seems to begin with an assumption of what the Bible elsewhere teaches, and that is that the marriage relationship, the man is the, the head of the home, and wives are called just to submit to his God-given authority. Now, the wonderful thing that Peter does here is that he brings out that submission, just as with the government or with, with slaves to masters, submission is not an issue of bondage, but really of freedom when we're in Christ. We're free to submit because ultimately we're serving Christ, who is always worthy of our allegiance, even if the government or masters or husbands are not worthy of it. We're called to Christ's likeness to walk in his footsteps of patience, humility, and suffering. So it's, it's good to note that it's not a demeaned or a demoted calling to be called to submit to the authorities that God has instituted. In fact, it's a freeing joy because we're becoming in that process more and more like Christ. Peter's emphasis here is specifically on submission of wives to unbelieving husbands, though he has uh, all marriage relationships in mind. He says, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word. So just as with masters who are unjust, so with Christian wives, they submit to their husbands, even if their husband is an unbeliever. And from what I understand, in that particular culture, the responsibility of the wife was to follow her husband in, in his religious practices. So if he worshipped this set of idols, the woman would, would come along with him. So that, that's all well and good until she becomes a Christian. Then she can't follow him. So how is she supposed to act in that scenario? You know, my true master and husband is Jesus now, and I disregard all that you have to say. Husband, take a hike. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, he gives us some good instruction here, 14 through 17. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So we see there that, that the Christian wife is not supposed to leave the unbelieving husband. Even if the unbelieving husband leaves her, he says fine, but if, if, she, if he wants to stay, then she should stick with it. That's kind of funny to me, but it's not funny, it's actually sad, but we often see this same phenomenon in our own context. It's interesting to me that Paul and Peter both focus on the wives of unbelieving husbands. I don't know about you if you've had that experience, but I've seen that a lot. The wife is kind of the faithful one coming to church, bringing her kids to church, and the husband is completely AWOL as the spiritual leader of his home. That's hard enough for a hard enough calling for a wife to submit to a husband who, although dramatically imperfect, seeks the physical and spiritual well-being of her and her children. You know, when a, when a husband is seeking to love his wife as Christ loved the church, washing her with the water of the word, 
when he is working to follow Christ's example in self-sacrifice, humility, and patience, that is in a very real way a foretaste of what is to come for us. However small and however blighted, it is a demonstration of God's design for marriage as a picture of Christ and his bride. But on the other hand, for a wife to submit to a man who is not a believer and who does not demonstrate Christian character, that can be real suffering. In that scenario, the themes of exile and sojourning can really hit home. I was just talking to a pastor friend this week, and he had this Catholic man and his wife. His wife's a Protestant. She comes to his church, and the Catholic guy would come occasionally, and he, after years now, has kind of confronted this man about his beliefs, and he said that since he's done that, the man has been more and more coarse toward his wife and, and less kind. My friend's advice to him was, or to her, was of course not hit the trail, but he's, what he said was, live in First Peter. But why? Why not run for the hills? Why not disregard everything he says? Why not act as though she cared nothing about what he says? Why not demean him and tell him he's a fool for not repenting and turning to Jesus? At least two reasons. First, uh, hope is not the immediate self-gratification of striking out in vengeance or of seeking relief and happiness elsewhere. It's the ultimate return of Christ, the vindication of all wrongs on the last day, and growth in Christ's likeness in the interim that brings joy. And second, she has here an opportunity to bear witness to him by her character. Peter says, They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So by maintaining a posture of submissive humility and respectful pure conduct over the long haul, the husband may come to be won over by her winsomeness. He may begin to see that there's something to this Christianity. However, if the wife continually preaches at him with this condescending, nagging tone about Christ, uh, he will reject it for sure, but for the grace of God. Uh, Calvin here has a great point. He says, But it may seem strange that Peter should say that a husband might be gained to the Lord without the word. For why is it said that faith cometh by hearing? Romans ten seventeen. To this I reply that Peter's words are not to be so understood as though a holy life alone could lead to the believing to Christ, the unbelieving to Christ, but that it softens and pacifies their minds so they might have less dislike to religion. For as bad examples create offenses, so good ones afford no small help. Then Peter shows that wives by a holy and pious life could do so much as to prepare their husbands without speaking to them on religion to embrace the faith of Christ. So that is the eternal perspective that Peter sets forward for wives, especially those with unbelieving husbands, that, that you have a higher calling. Perhaps through your love and respect, you might win your husband over. That, that short-sightedness, that pulling the trigger before you should, uh, that immediate gratification would have you reject your husband right now. But hope provides that staying power that you need 
Now, of course, just briefly, I want to say that if a, if a woman is in a situation where her, her safety is in danger, I'm not here recommending that wives stick with their husbands through abuse. But I think Peter's saying, try to stick it in there, even with the unbelievers. Try to last the long haul, even if they're unjust or unbelieving. Now, Peter continues his exhortation to women here by contrasting um, external adornment with the adornment of the inner person. He says in verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So once again here, it's not... Uh, social constructs that Peter points to to motivate Christian activity. It's the greater realities of God's pleasure and our identity in God. I think modern abusers of some of these truths, whether it be you know womanizers or feminists, they make assertions about the way women should dress based purely on the perceptions drawn from social constructs uh, with no eye to God whatsoever. And Peter here validates his perspective by pointing to the truth that inner adornment is precious in the sight of God. Uh, Clowney points out here that there's kind of two ways we can take these commandment, uh, commandments, two directions where we can err in them. First of all, we can just brush them aside as you know, ancient, this was their culture, we don't have to adhere to them. Or on the other side, we can become extremists and insist that women must only dress Plain. These specific items he lists here are uh, not things I would think of as immodest or disrespectful. You know, braiding of hair, wearing of gold, putting on of clothing. Certainly, we should be putting on clothing. Um, I think putting on clothing there means fancy robes. Um, braiding of hair is a, is a hairstyle I would think of as modest in our age. The key here, I think, is in the contrast. He says the external adornment is of little consequence in comparison to the adorning of the hidden person of the heart. External beauty is perishable, but the beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit is imperishable. Beautiful jewelry may be costly and display affluence, but what God judges to be very precious is what really counts here. I read a fair amount of conjecture about the exact issue that Peter is addressing here. Um, It could be that the women who are going to gather with the saints who have unbelieving husbands kind of stick it to them by getting dressed up to go to church. I I didn't really... I don't know about that one. Um, (laughs) Or it could be that, that some men want to kind of display their wives as trophies, especially unbelieving men, And because that's not becoming of a Christian woman, she ought not to oblige, that may be. Um, Or it could just be merely that that vanity is a temptation, especially for women. I read all those things, and I honestly don't know the exact problem Peter's addressing. But a few things I can say for sure. Uh, First is that these verses about adornment come kind of smack in the middle of the verses about submitting to husbands. So I think... Somehow that dress has to do 
with the submitting to husband's part. Another thing I know is that God values internal beauty of character far more than external adornment. And third, uh, this whole broader section has to do with living out the Christian life in a way that's consistent, that we have a consistent witness in the world as the world looks at us. So my best stab at what Peter's communicating to us here is that a woman who dresses extravagantly may be able to impress society around her. And certainly in our society, she can kind of assert her own independence by the way she adorns herself. And the best way for her to please God is to cultivate in internal beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit and submitting with patience to her husband. Now that kind of talk in first century Roman culture would have generated respect because she would not be striking out against her husband and his gods. That would have been a threat to to that society if she had done that. In our culture, that type of attitude might generate anger and disgust. Notions of quiet, peaceful women who dress temperately and submit to their husbands, that is a threat to our society. Some interpreters here want to soften the themes of this text by saying the main purpose of Peter's exhortations were to allow Christians to speak to the culture that they were in. Roman culture saw submission of wives as important. So do it. Become all things to all people. The culture has changed. Now so should we. And I think it's true. Apologetic witness is certainly in Peter's view in Peter's view here. I think that's undeniable. But the problem is also that he says that particular way of life is very precious in the sight of God. That's eternal. That doesn't change. Which redirects our attention back to the main proposition of this sermon. Christian hope fuels Christ-likeness in the marriage relationship. So our primary motivation for anything, including the tricky subject a female dress is the question, what does God think? My hope doesn't rest in what people think, it rests in what God thinks. I'm just passing through this world, I'm a stranger in exile in this world. My home is the one to come. So the question is, how can I best please my Father in heaven, with whom I will live in eternal happiness? Kevin DeYoung points out in uh, The Hole in Our Holiness, Kind of to paraphrase what he was saying, uh, the main goal in all of our relationships is to glorify God, not to get as close to sinning as possible. We aren't salvation minimalists interested in getting away with something. We want to know how to maximally, maximally please God. So I think the lines become less blurry for us if instead of kind of reading the Bible to establish the limits and see how far we can push it toward the limits of our boundaries, we instead read the Bible with an eye to the maximum glorification of the Father. Rather than asking how far can I push it, we should ask how much can I please God? So when we live with our eyes set on heaven with that eternal hope in mind, the Christ-likeness that we're seeking abounds in all of our relationships, and that is really what we're really after. Now, Peter continues here to point us to submission motivated by hope. Verse 5, 
he says in verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So the beauty of that external, or the internal beauty, was demonstrated long ago with these Old Testament women. Like what Alistair Begg said, he said, we have a, a cover girl, we have a model, and her name is Sarah. And by the way, she's covered in wrinkles. I <laughs> uh, like Clowney's quote here, the contemporary world resists the aging process at all costs, yet the youthful body that it idolizes quickly fades. Christians need, need God's values to reject the futility of the worldly search for beauty. Can real beauty still be blooming along with wrinkles? Peter offers the answer of a long-established beauty school, the daughters of Sarah. So these women of old, they displayed their beauty and they adorned themselves by submitting to their husbands. And that's not to suggest that their husbands awoke every morning with wives holding a tray of breakfast saying, how may I serve you, my Lord? In fact, the only place where Sarah is recorded as calling Abraham Lord was not even to his face. It's in Genesis 18, 12. She when God promises a son, she laughs and she says, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I still have pleasure? That's the only recorded instance in the Bible of her calling him Lord. She's laughing at God's promises outside anyone's hearing, but she still calls Abraham her Lord, which is the word Adonai. He is her head of the household, that leader, the protector, that authority figure who acts on his initiative and lives in his calling that God has placed on his life to lead and guide his family. So it's not a demeaning or domineering uh, what I say goes type of relationship. In fact, Abraham deferred to Sarah's judgment a number of times in Genesis. But Sarah submitted to her husband and obeyed him. And Peter says, uh, in so doing, she modeled that that hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So again, to bring this back around to that main point, a woman can uh, put on Christ-likeness in her marriage in the act of submission, and even to an unbelieving husband. Perhaps we could say even especially to an unbelieving husband. But in her hope for a future inheritance and her new identity in Christ, uh, there's no bondage in taking up the role of submissive wife. There's freedom. Freedom to fulfill God's roles that he's placed within the institution of marriage. Freedom to show forth the fruits of the new woman she is in Christ and to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in humility and sacrifice and love. Now Peter turns his attention to men in verse 7. For some reason he gives gives ladies six verses and us one I blame that on him not not myself <laughs> he says in verse 7 likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered so really here the call of 
on men is no different than the call on women. The God-given roles are different, so the call takes on a different form, but ultimately men are also to follow in the footsteps of Christ in humility, self-sacrifice, and love. Once again, Peter is not here engaging in a full treatise on complementarian thought or on the male's role within the home. He's continuing to point out that as new creatures in Christ, we have a responsibility to live out our earthly relationships in a way that accords with our new life. And that is with a good witness before the world. So husbands must not abuse their God-given position of authority in the home. He says we're to live with our wives in an understanding way, or more literally here, according to knowledge. We are to know our wives with an intimate understanding of who they are, what they care about, what they're concerned about, what are their natural inclinations, how do they express themselves, what do they like, what do they dislike, what is their relationship with the Lord and with their children and with you like. Men are to know their wives and live with them in an understanding way. It could be easy for us in the home to lead in a way that's just like, Lay down the wall law, here are the rules, obey them, I'm going to go do my thing. I'm going golfing. (laughs) Some men do fall into that kind of dictatorial mode of operation, but Peter insists, men, you must live with your wives in an understanding way. He says, honor them as the weaker vessel. Honestly, I've struggled to interpret that phrase, weaker vessel. What does that mean? Commentators haven't been a whole lot of help to me. Uh, my, my struggle has been, in what sense is she a weaker vessel, and why is that position of weakness worthy of honor? I can think of two ways that the female sex is typically weaker than ma- the male, physically and emotionally, typically. So it could be saying here, be respectful of those realities. Live in a way that respects, honors, cherishes the the beautiful delicacy of your wife. Recognize that she is not you, and God has given her special gifts, special roles to play in life. Now, a water jug for hauling water is large and strong and more of a crude vessel. A water pot for watering flowers is smaller, more delicate, more beautiful. But neither is less or more worthy of honor. Neither is less or more valuable. They both have their uses, though constructed differently. And I think that's the point of submission here. The one vessel has been given the duty to serve by leading, stepping up to the plate, taking the initiative, and the other vessel has been given the duty to serve through submission. So submission is a functionally weaker position to assume, but it is not a less valuable position in the sight of God. Which is exactly Peter's point here when he goes on to say, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. They're heirs with you of the grace of life. So our our Christian wives are our sisters before they are our wives. The institution of marriage is for this life only, which has always kind of bummed me out. But then I realized, though I won't be married to Kelly, we'll have a relationship that is deep and profound and without the barriers of sin that we now experience. In some ways, we'll be closer together. 
As one commentator said, our wives are just as much a living stone built into the temple as we are. In Christ, there is no male and female. That's not to suggest there's no distinctions in how we're wired or gifted or the assignments we receive, but that in Christ, no sex is of any more or less value before God. Finally, he says here, the reason why is that so your prayers are not hindered. It's an interesting thing to say. Is is he saying that my actions somehow influence how God hears my prayers? I think he is saying that. I don't think we can come before the throne of grace with confidence if we're treating our sisters in Christ with disrespect unless it's to come for the sake of repentance and confession and to plead for the grace of Christ. First uh, John is very clear throughout the book that if we do not love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we do not love God. So, brothers, I encourage you, if you're to come before God, to plead for the well-being of our country or our churches or our businesses, we first begin with the well-being and a concern for our homes and especially our wives who are equal and fellow heirs with us and our dear sisters in Christ. So I want to conclude with this exhortation here. It's not an exhortation to try harder or to submit better or to lead better. It's an exhortation to hope fully. It's when we do not have an, an, <clears throat> excuse me, an eternal perspective that the principles we have seen here begin to fall out. We begin to want to pull that trigger too quick, that immediate gratification. So ladies, hope in God as the women of old hoped in God. And men, love your wives with patience and understanding, knowing that they are co-heirs and sisters in Christ. And may we all live in our God-given roles, imitating our elder brother Jesus in patience, humility, kindness, and love. Amen.